Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Uh, my guest today is Vish Narendra. Vish is the uh, Chief Information Officer and Senior Vice President of Global Business Services at Graphic Packaging. Uh, Graphic Packaging is a leading provider of paper-based packaging solutions that earns in excess of $9 billion in annual revenue. Uh, Vish has been leading a remarkable transformation in this organization. I'm looking forward to getting some of the substance of that and how he's led that. In prior roles, he was a Divisional Ch uh, Chief Information Officer at General Electric, uh, at GE's divisions, uh, the, the Power and Water and Energy divisions of the organization specifically. And uh, I'm pleased to be taking this interview in, on, on your campus. Thank you so much for hosting me today uh, here at Graphic Packaging's uh, uh, headquarters, Vish. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to be here with you in our recording studio. It's a state-of-the-art facility that we kind of built and uh, we can use it for recording town halls and, and uh, podcasts like this or direct uplinks to, uh, to studios. We're really excited about the investment that we've made here. We're just starting to use it a lot more. So really happy that you're here to, uh, to take advantage of it. It's my great pleasure. But first, a quick word from our partner, Adyen, and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world, to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What Adyen did and what we do is sort of really do the back-end plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment, but it's, hey, how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases? Thanks, Cameron. And now on to the interview. Well, Vish, talk a bit about graphic packaging, if you would, for yeah. the as a, as a primarily a business to business player, a lot of consumers wouldn't necessarily know the organization. And so right. talk a bit about the business and the substance of what you're in. Yeah, we're uh, the largest uh, integrated folding carton manufacturer in the world. Uh, as you said, we'll be north of $9 billion in revenue this year. Um, and uh, we make the products that you take home, um, whether it's in your refrigerator, your pantry, your freezer. Um, we package food, beverage, consumer products. Um, we, we do a little bit of industrial packaging as well. Um, we've got uh, mills, so we produce the paperboard rolls that then, get, that then gets consumed in our folding carton and cup making facilities. Um, and uh, we've got about 110 manufacturing locations across the globe, um, about seven, seven mills. The rest are folding carton and cup making facilities. Um, and so with the marquee names uh, that you can think of are all customers of ours. Um, so the cereal that you eat, uh, the frozen pizza, um, the, uh, the HVAC, um, air filters that you use, mm. the, the paperboard around that, that's us. So a big swath of the United States uh, is customers of ours. You just don't know it. 
Um, but we make about 35, 36, maybe 38% of the paper cups in the United States. Mm -hmm. So what you have here are, this is a double wall paper cup for coffee. That's a, an eco-tainer uh, compostable paper cup that we make uh, for cold drinks. Um, so we're, we're a big part of the food, beverage, and industrial packaging um, you know, economy of the United States, Western Europe, parts of Australia, a little bit in China, Japan, and Brazil. Fascinating. Thank you for that overview. Yep. Talk a bit about your the two sides of your role. As I mentioned, you're the chief information officer. You're also the senior vice president of global business services. What do each side of your sets of uh, purviews entail, please? Yeah, so what's not in the title that you said, which seems really long and, you know, pretentious, but um, there's a third piece of it. So the way I think about it and the way the organization thinks about it is we've got a, a process transformation team. These are not IT people. These are business functional folks that we've pulled into redesigning, reimagining what that future state needs to look like, how we want to operate in the future. Um, once they design those solutions, the technology teams will then put it into to, uh, practice and implementation uh, and run it and, and maintain it and all that. And then I've got a shared services group that transacts on these systems. So you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, all the record to report process, um, payroll for the United States. Um, eventually, we want to expand that capability into Europe. As we standardize processes and systems in the European landscape, uh, will allow us and afford us the opportunity to then expand the capabilities of that shared services organization into new geographies, potentially new capabilities, you know, helping more on the buy-to-pay side, uh, helping more stand-up HR shared services, th those types of things. Um, and so it's an integrated play for us where we change the systems and the processes. The people that are transacting on those are the ones that are kind of providing input on how best to improve the processes and change them, and then we deploy them. So it's this beautiful cycle that we've kind of built. So it's three parts of the, the same uh, you know, puzzle. Very interesting indeed. I'm I, um, fascinated to hear more about how that all works together. As I mentioned, you've had uh, an unusually long tenure as a tech and digital executive, seven and a half years in your current role, roughly. And I, I know that you've led, from our past conversations, you've described a pretty remarkable transformation that you've led. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of waves of change that you've ushered in in your, in your role. Yeah, we've, uh, we've really done this in phases. Um, as m most of you know, change is neither uh, easy or cheap. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, you really got to be very thoughtful and methodical about uh, doing this. Um, it's, you know, the old expression of changing uh, wheels on a t car as it's moving, right? It's, it's a very tough thing to do. So in some ways, we, you, try, you don't want to break anything, but you want to really continue to, to build additional capabilities um, that the organization doesn't have. So really go back, uh, you know, seven and a half years ago when I started, um, we were about $4 billion in revenue, so we've grown a lot in the last seven years. Um, and we had been built by bolting on a lot of acquisitions. Um, and there was a realization that, and we'd been built uh, by paying down a lot of debt, so they had not done a lot of investment. So there was a lot of tech debt um, going back to 14 and 15. Um, and so the mandate that I had was really, hey, how do you build a, a scalable foundation upon which we can layer on more and more and continue to grow this business and, and deliver the leverage and the scale of a large uh, corporation? And that doesn't come from scattered processes and scattered systems. That really comes from uh, standardizing as much as you possibly can. So phase one for us was really more 
infrastructure and security. Um, and so uh, foundationally, we re-engineered the network, re-engineered all of the compute services that we deliver. Um, we re-engineered uh, pretty much all of the infrastructure service management capabilities across the enterprise. And we, we then scaled it. We took it to Europe. We took it to Australia and New Zealand. So now we have a single service management platform. We've got single collaboration platforms. There's a, so there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure and collaboration and other enablement services that were the foundational pieces. So that was sort of phase one. Um, phase two was, hey, now that we've built this, and then for us, a seminal transaction was in 2018, we closed on an acquisition of a piece of international paper, roughly about a billion six top line, two um, uh, solid bleach sulfate mills, as well as three, four cup making facilities that we acquired from IP. And so that was a point where we actually took a big step function in scale, size, scope, et cetera. And, and so that was the time to have the conversation with the CEO, CFO, the operating leaders to say, it's not going to be sufficient to just simply throw more into the mix. We really have to start thinking about this a little differently. And so when we did, we had two options. We said, hey, do we, do we go big bang, go in a room, redesign everything, and then come back and realize that the business has kind of moved on and you know, it's not, it's not going to work? Or do we do this in sort of bite-sized chunks? Do we, do, we, do, we, uh, do we separate these in a way that they are more digestible but yet at the same time very tightly interconnected. Um, and so the answer to us was the latter. That's, so that's what we did. We kind of broke our entire transformation in about eight or nine big programs. Um, and we didn't launch all of them at the same time. So we launched two of them. We created a central financial core. Um, so we, have, we put a brand new SAP S4 HANA instance for financial consolidation. And that's been a huge win for us because when we did the transaction uh, a year ago in Europe, we were able to integrate all their financials, 50 legal entities, all of them, within a three-month time frame into that financial uh, engine. And so that was the fundamental, foundational first piece of the puzzle, first two couple of pieces of the puzzle. Then we started launching some work on the commercial front end. Um, how do we uh, configure price and code to a customer? How do we estimate jobs? How do we then you know, make sure that uh, the contracts that we sign with the customers are adhered to um, that when we say, you know, pricing is based on certain volumes, but the volumes don't show up, we don't end up selling at the higher volume prices and, you know, have some revenue leakage. So some commercial front-end stuff that got kicked off. Um, and then we're, we started doing some work in, in our converting facilities on the shop floor, um, you know, sensor enabling our high-speed presses, cutters, gluers, so we can start analyzing downtime codes and making sure that, those micro stops can be minimized or avoided, and then you get you know start to drive machine throughputs. You know speed and utilization you know increases. So like that, we kind of had these you know um, blocks that we kind of built on top of each other. So that was the, the the next phase. But there was a security transformation that we were driving as well across the board. So a tremendous amount of work has gone into building a security program for the company uh, six years ago. Really. Antivirus was the only thing that we really talked about. Um, we have a modern uh, stack that we built in. Um, and again, everything, our focus really is to get everything real time in the enterprise. So our eye on the prize is if there is something going on, we don't want to find out 30 days later. We want to find out 
within 30 minutes so we can take immediate action. So um, our, our overarching goal is to build this real-time enterprise. And so all of the transformation that we've done or are in the process of doing is based on that premise that we can get to real-time data, real-time metrics, real-time insights. And so we're investing in AI and wearable technology on the shop floor, things like that. You know, we've got a program called Smart Mills, um, which, you know, is going to drive um, uh, the ability to train, simulate, and do operator rounds digitally, uh, have a connected worker who can do remote assist calls if they need to, so people don't have to be located everywhere or travel all the time. So there's a tremendous amount of that that we're layering in to the enterprise. So ultimately, we're, we're basically putting in the processes, the tools, the systems that we want to leave behind for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, with, of course, the flexibility to be able to change all of that if we need to. Fascinating overview. And I, I, as I'm hearing you talk, as, across your tenure, the company's doubled in size. Uh, the, naturally, the ambitions from a technology and innovation perspective have grown accordingly. The, it sounds like the organization you found, uh, with its capabilities then, would not have been appropriate for the ambitions uh, and expectations today. And so, what a luxury the company has had in having a leader across seven and a half years, as I mentioned, uh, an unusually long tenure for a, a tech and digital leader, to be able to go through these waves of changes with a longer-term perspective in mind. You weren't thinking like, I'll be here two years and then be out of here and whatever mess is left is for the next guy, but rather, how are we building and setting a foundation upon which we can actually do really special things? Yep. Did you have that long-term perspective from the get-go? From the get-go, from the get-go. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I still remember um, one of the board meetings, uh, one of the board members saying, so are you going fast enough? Do you need more money? And, and my answer back to them was, look, you know, um, we could throw a lot of bodies and a lot of money at this, but if that change doesn't stick or we've gone too fast and we've broken the business, all the value that we might potentially create goes away. So we've got to be really thoughtful and methodical in how, the, how we do this. You know, anytime I go touch an operator, they're actually producing product. I can't mess with what they do or how they do their job too much. I can spend the time to train them, et cetera. But if I just tell them, we gotta get this done in two months, and I just dump a little bit of training, they're not really gonna buy into it. So I've gotta really think it through. And then they're gonna provide feedback, right? Whatever we cooked up may or may not be, and guaranteed is never gonna be 100% right, right? No way. We'll be happy and lucky if it's 50% right. But they've gotta provide the feedback. We've gotta iterate, we've gotta iron out the kinks, we've gotta deliver a solution that actually works for the operator, the supervisor, the plant manager, you know, at various levels. Once it does it one place, then we can go wide, right? But simply just going wide without really proving the efficacy or the efficiency of the solution that you put in is a, is a bit of a recipe for disaster. So we've been very thoughtful and methodical in how we've approached it. Um, we're just not going to dump a whole bunch of stuff in and expect or hope that it, it works. Well, it's also uh, another thing that I found fascinating in getting to know your story and getting to know you is you, during a time, the past several years especially, where a lot of your peers have experienced higher than normal levels of attrition, you've had, had admirably low levels of attrition, which means you've got kind of a, a great collective memory across the organization for the change that you're ushering in. Uh, to say nothing of, of, it sounds like, keeping some of your best people for the long term, just as you have been here for this journey as well. Talk a bit about your recipe. What, what's different about the way in which you're managing such that you've been able to buck uh, a frustrating trend for a lot of your peers? I think, I think uh, there's, there's three components to it. One, you've got to work at a company that has good values. Um, 
and, and has growth opportunities. Right? Nobody wants to work, or at least lots of people don't generally want to work for long periods of time in companies that are constantly cutting costs or constantly in survival mode, right? So we've been on a growth trajectory and we have great values. It's a what I call a very high say-do ratio. If people say they're going to go do something, they get it done. Um, and and so, you know, people are willing to roll up their sleeves and, and make things happen. So the value system is really important. And the company, the leadership, the rest of the organization, they all have to believe in the same thing, strong culture. So we have that. So that's a that's a, almost a prerequisite, right? So that's one. The The second thing is that we've been able to invest and people want to work on on impactful things on if you're a pure technologist you want to be working on cool technologies right and if you if you're not doing things just for the sake of technology but you still want to have an impact and we're doing that a lot of the things that we do and we touch are direct impact in fact every single one of our programs that, that we run through our steering committee, and it's a monthly steering committee process, happy to talk about that. Um, every program has a, a business leader as a sponsor and me as a co-sponsor. If I don't have that business leader, we're not gonna do the program, right? And every one of those things has to drop to the bottom line some benefits within 12 to 18 months. It were a very, very high show me culture. So. When you have things like that and people see the value, they want to be here, right? I'm working on really cool stuff and it's impactful to the business and the company's doing well. Those are two big chunks. The third thing, which is the one thing that we control to some extent directly is who we bring in. So up until about two or three years ago, it didn't matter what the role was, I interviewed, I was the last interview across the, the organization. And the reason for me was, by the time they hit my desk, they're more than likely a good fit for the job. I'm checking to see, are they a good fit for the rest of the organization? Do they have potential to you know, be mobile and take other challenges? Um, are they gonna fit in with a broader swath of the uh, organization? Do they fit the, the values? What are their motivations? Are they here for the long haul? Um, and so it's really important to me to make sure that they're going to fit in with the rest of the organization. And so I was doing those interviews. Now I've got very senior leaders, very seasoned leaders who know what the company expects. So I delegate that now. But every one of my VPs, you know, if they're hiring somebody, one other VP will also be on the interview list because they're not working with just that one organization, they're working with everybody else. So one other of my staff members has to kind of sign off and say, yes, I agree, you'll be a good fit for the, the team, not just your small group. Um, and so we've been very uh, thoughtful about bringing the right people in who want to fit in, who belong in the culture, who are here for the long haul, who enjoy the work that they do. So to me, those are the three big reasons that we've been, we've been We've been at a company that is investing, so we can put the, the cool stuff in, growing, and meaningful work, impactful work, and then making sure that there's a culture fit. And that's really been a, a good formula for us. That's fantastic. You mentioned earlier as you were describing the phases of transformation that you've ushered in, that the ultimate goal is to get to the <clears throat> point of having a real-time enterprise mm -hmm. with better use of data and analytics. You mentioned artificial intelligence as a key component to that as well. 
Talk a bit about your vision there, um, it, rather significant, uh, again, relative to where you began this journey uh, in role, what you're now uh, shooting to accomplish. Um, talk a bit about the substance of your data strategy and how you've organized this in order to extract a maximum value. Yeah, so, you know, for full open disclosure, we're relatively early in this. Um, I just hired a, a leader for our data and analytics um, work that we're going to do. Uh, just joined us about three months ago, already has kind of hit the ground running. Um, but I'll take a step back, talk a little bit about the landscape, and then we'll talk about that data and analytics uh, program and strategy. Um, you know, I think the old, as I grew up in the ranks at GE, as you said, you know, and, and it wasn't just GE, across the globe, the belief was every time you did an M&A, the best way to integrate them was to put them on the same common ERP, right? Um, and ERP was sort of that sole center of the world. We're now at a point where the business, speed of business is too fast and we can't integrate them and put them on common ERPs fast enough. By the time I get two or three done in a year, they've bought another entity and there's another seven to 10 sites. We did a transaction last year, a billion, one or two top line in Europe, 30 sites, maybe 20 plus ERPs. I mean, it'll take me four or five years before I can integrate them onto a common platform. So business cannot wait until we do that. And so we've got to find alternative ways to get them the information and the data and the insights that they need. And the cloud piece has been a big enabler for that. Um, so what we're trying to do is bring data from disparate sources um, in with fantastic new tools, startups or established companies that you can now build like this virtualized data model across a, you know, a distributed um, a landscape and then abstract the data that you need into a cloud data lake type of environment so you can then start visualizing how the business is operating, et cetera. So we're doing that along multiple dimensions now um, to provide that kind of visibility. So that's like a foundational layer for us. Um, the next thing, we, so that's just one part on the ERP, et cetera. On the manufacturing side in our mills, we've always had historians. So we've got time series data going back 10 years. So we're completely data rich and totally data uh, insight poor, right? And so we're, we're investing some time um, to now start looking at, hey, there is about 250, 300 tags in the historian. Which ones are the relevant ones to look at, you know, paper strength or paper quality or whatever. And you can now run very, very quick models and come up with the four variables that really impact paper strength. Right, and we just did a proof of concept on something. The head of our mills is super excited about that. So we're now going to invest more into that and put that in the hands of the actual practitioners that are running the paper machine. So instead of having to wait two hours or four hours where that paper actually goes into the lab, gets tested, comes back, and by the time you've already produced another 10, 15, 20 rolls or how many ever rolls, we want to do it in 10, 15 minutes right there on the machine so you can then start dialing, pulling the right levers to change, you know, from one grade to another. How do you make that faster so you consume less material going in, less power, less steam, you know, all of those things. So you're optimizing the production flow. And so that's where the power for us is taking all the data that we already have and being able to analyze it in real time and go and make changes and change the dials so you can produce faster, cheaper, better. Compelling vision, certainly. 
Uh, I wanted to, you, you referenced uh, part of the governance structure, the monthly steering committees that you've put together as yeah. a means of, it sounds like, prioritizing the activities that you and your team will undertake. Uh, you mentioned there was a, a bit more to, sh to share there. I'd love to understand the substance. Yeah, that's that's also, it's actually one of the things that I, I've been reflecting on with the team. Um, we've been running these steering committees. I started in May of 15. They gave me about six months to kind of settle in. By, from 16, We've been running the steering committee meetings, and they used to be once a quarter. And the conversation was primarily around IT topics. It was focused on, hey, the security program, or you know, collaboration tool, or you know, whatever. Right? It is a completely different discussion today, um, and it is every month. CEO and his entire staff, the process teams that are driving the change my staff, which all the IT folks, my process folks, everybody. And we only talk about these major transformation programs, five or six of them. And the conversation is primarily, what is the process change? What is the impact on people? Are roles evolving? If they are, we're going to make organizational shifts. HR is involved. Uh, it is a totally different discussion today mm -hmm. where it is purely focused on business and business impact and very little to do with what tool are you deploying to solve this problem? We don't talk about that anymore, barely. So to me, that is progress. That is, we're now having a business conversation as opposed to, hey, some shiny new object. Um, and, uh, and so it's an, every month. We just had one this morning at 8 o'clock. Um, you know, it's on the calendar for 23. And, you know, every month it's like clockwork. We don't review every program every time. Where it's meaningful, it'll usually be three or four of the big change programs that we're driving. Uh, but I'm really excited about it, proud of the transition that we've made from being this, you know, technology back office kind of team to now front and center, driving the change, having that, that deep discussion around, you know, how do we make things better for the company? It's really satisfying. I have a real thread through this conversation is a remarkable cultural change that you've ushered in. Uh, it's, it's really inspiring to hear about that. Um, I mentioned in the intro, you referenced it a moment ago as well, your time at General Electric. And I've always been fascinated by the number of peers that you have who lead tech and digital functions at major Fortune 500 companies who have GE in their background. And I wonder, as somebody who was there for quite some time and had multiple leadership roles across multiple divisions of the organization, as I referenced, um, what was it about that experience that has led to so many of you becoming uh, tech and digital leaders at, at uh, consequential organizations around the world? Uh, you know, um, suddenly the G story is, um, it's taken a diversion, yeah. if you will, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, of late. Yes. Um, but there were so many things that G did well and well ahead of everybody else that became a really good training ground for a lot of us. Um, you couple that with the fact that they had a very well-intentioned, well-thought-out, methodical approach to human capital management. And so every year, every function, every business leader would have sit down with HR and their business leader and talk about the people in their organization and who's doing well, who's not, who needs that next development opportunity, you know, do we ha see the potential? And, and so when we come out of that, usually, that's when the role changes happen, right? When so you say, we want to we want to continue to stretch this person. They got to go learn a few more things. Here's a role that may be the right fit. You know, it's very well thought out and orchestrated. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I joined in 2001. Um, I joined uh, 
running middleware program for G Energy. I'm guessing through this HR process, the CIO said, I want to talk to you. So I went up to chat, chat with the CIO. He said, hey, look, you know, I've seen a lot of good things from you. Really like the work that you're doing. I've got a great next job for you. And I said, okay, sure, tell me what it is. And he said, I want you to move to sourcing and run IT sourcing for me. And I, I, I was kind of a little taken aback. And I said, first you said you like me. <laughs> next you said you're going to have me leave the organization. Um, and you're going to put me in a role that I'm not, I mean, we were buying at that time between IT, between energy and aviation, probably 500, 600 million dollars. And, you know, you're putting me in charge of negotiating half a billion of stuff. I mean, it's kind of, I'm not trained for that. But they, he said, look, you, when you do that, I want you to put all the processes in and then come back to IT. And along the way, your job is to influence the, the rest of the CIOs, the divisional CIOs, to leverage these processes so we can buy in the most efficient manner. So it's also in some ways an audition for your next role. Um, and so you really have to build a relationship, you know, explain why you're re-engineering things, you know, rather than letting them just go buy things on their own, et cetera. So they kind of throw you on the deep end. And I survived. I did well. And that then became the springboard to the next job. And so I think the fearlessness that we have of asking the questions, wanting to drive change, making things, you know, even if you don't know them, finding who the people are that have the answers, getting the answers, and then, you know, solving some big problems, taking some risks. Those are not things that every company does. That's, that's very unique. Um, and so that then became a huge training ground. So then my next gig was Lean Six Sigma, Six Sigma Master Black Belt. My next gig after that was, hey, we're going to send you to Asia to fix an attrition problem and support all the business growth in the region. Like, so I moved out over to Asia, came back. So it was just these, these opportunities that you get that some ways you could argue, I, you know, you have no business being in those roles because you're not qualified. But... I think um, they had a unique sense of identifying, um, you know, certain skills and characteristics and attributes, and then giving those people the opportunity to go learn in an accelerated fashion. And that then breeds a level of confidence to be, you know, out there learning, understanding, bringing those back and challenging the, the, the orthodoxy and, and driving that change. So I think, I think that's, that's a big part of, there was a, an ecosystem that enabled you to think big, think broad, take risks, do things, learn from them. And, and I think that ecosystem has bred so many, it's, and that's not just IT, great financial leaders, great operating leaders, great technology leaders, health and safety, every aspect of the business. They had a great system that allowed people to grow, take these risks, and then, you know, continue to develop in their journey. And how has that impacted the way in which you think about talent development? We talked a moment ago about the, some of the remarkable things you're doing and, in fact, the data that is proving that that's going pretty well uh, by, by those who have uh, decided to stay. Um, how did that impact the way in which you've thought about your own leadership, be it uh, succession planning or, or stretch opportunities or having people press past that intimidating uh, period where they, they feel like imposters perhaps in the role that they've been given, uh, other things that come to mind? We've done similar things here. I, I mean, our, the head of our transformation, um, he, he's not an IT person. Mm. He loves systems and system change, but he was the fp leader for the corporation. 
and he knew exactly how everything was wired and needed to be unwired and rewired. And he knows, and so we, we put him in that role to drive some of that change, right? And that's, that, that's not a traditional move for somebody that was on an FP&A track and really knew every nuance of the financials of the company. Um, there was a lady who came from the international paper transaction and she was looking for a different opportunity and we needed somebody to communicate all the change that we were driving. So when she raised her hand, we kind of put those two, two things together. She became our communicator. Now she's back to doing a traditional IT job, but it was a different kind of opportunity for her to go do. So we're constantly looking to see, okay, where are the opportunities? Is this some, some of our, uh, one of the um, data analyst you know, folks that came over to us actually moved over from supply chain. One of our really good warehouse guys, IT warehouse guys, just took a job in our supply chain, right? And so when the fit is right, we're kind of fearless about making these moves. That also gives people um, an opportunity to go do something different. And not everybody's suited for it. We get it. Um, you know, for those that are, those opportunities exist. Um, it's a matter of having those conversations and saying, I may be interested in doing A, B, C, D, or E. And then, you, you know, matching the individual aspiration to the company goals and putting those two things together gives you that optimized workforce. Very interesting. We've talked about a number of trends of, of relevance and trends related to data analytics, uh, some of the advanced technologies you're putting in place, uh, trends that, you're, you, that are associated with your talent playbook and so on. What other trends come to mind as you look to the future that have you excited? For us, it really is um, making this the most attractive place for people to come work. So when I think about going into colleges and recruiting, Right, for the next generation of workforce to come in. We're competing with the Googles and the Microsofts, et cetera, right? For us to hire an engineer, that's who we're competing with. And we're a fairly high engineering company, right? We've got the mills, process 24-7, mills have to run, chemical engineers, mechanical, electrical, we got all that. We actually have a machinery division. Um, and that machinery division produces machines that go at the back end of the bottling and canning lines of beverage companies and will basically build your six pack, your 24 pack on the, on the run, right? And those have flexibility to switch from six to 20, 12 to 24 packs if you need to without stopping the line, right? So very heavy engineering. So for us to compete with some of those guys, for, for compete for talent against the Googles and the Microsoft is a tough, tough putt. Um, and so what we wanna be is um, an employer of choice. And the way we do that is provide the right kind of tools and technologies that people can do their jobs a lot easier than 10 years ago. So if you ask somebody coming out of college today to go into a mill and say, give them a 300 page binder and say, this is your job, learn it. They're gonna look at us like we got six horns on our heads. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to do that. The world is at their fingertips on a phone. So why can't I Google search everything on the enterprise and find my answer? I gotta be able to do that. Uh, and so that really is our singular focus in making sure that we can attract the right kind of workforce with the right kind of skills, tools, capabilities, um, and that they're excited to come here and they're excited to be here. They're excited to do the, th the work that we need them to do. That's really great. Uh, well, I also wanted to ask you, uh, about the secrets to your success, uh, Vish. You're somebody who's been a, 
a, a tech and digital executive across multiple esteemed organizations. Um, you talked a bit about the importance of some of your formative years at GE, for example, and not some of the factors that pushed you past your comfort zone and perhaps proved to you the sorts of things that you could do, uh, even beyond perhaps your expectations. What are other things that come to mind that you think have been some of the difference makers, especially the extent to which this might be kind of uh, framed as advice for people who are younger than you that might, ha might wish to have a, a career that rhymes with yours? Well, I'll start by saying I'm extremely blessed. I, I, can, I can toot my own horn all I want, but, you know, along the way for everybody, certain things have to fall in place, luck has to happen, the right ecosystems, all of that. There's plenty of stories about amazing people that have really struggled through tough environments and all that. So I feel extremely blessed in my journey. Um, I, I think um, I look back. There's a couple of things that stand out. It's, it's really, really important, if, if, especially if you're thinking about, hey, I want to continue to do bigger, broader things and take on more responsibility and so on, which we define traditionally as growth, right? If you want to grow in your career. Now, some people want to be principal architects because they love solving architecture-type problems. Totally okay. Take nothing away from that. And what, so whether it's that type of track or you want to be a manager and you want to go into general management, et cetera, I would say be super open to learning. Right? You don't have all the answers. In any conversation, I try, I do my best to ask more questions than I say things. Um, and so when you do that, you're getting input from multiple sources, then you can then sort of triangulate to get to possible decisions that you might need to make. So that's really important. Um, other thing I would say is find mentors. Find people that I call them my personal board of directors. You know, if I have questions, if I have big decisions I got to make or I need help with something, I have a, 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 a list of people that I will call um, and say, here's the situation, tell me about it. And I don't call them just because I need help, right? These are people in my network. I stay connected with them. It's really important to do that because, again, you don't have all the answers. There's others that have done this before. They can guide you, coach, or ask the right questions. More importantly, ask the right questions to have you think. Because a true mentor is not somebody who tells you what to do, but tells you how to think um, and or tells you how to think about certain things a certain way. Um, and so get that. Um, and then, you know, hard work. There's no, no replacement for that. Well, Vishnarendra, thank you so much for a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you again for your hospitality uh, and the stories of this remarkable transformation that you and your team have led uh, here at Graphic Packaging. It's a, an ex extraordinary story, and I look forward to remaining abreast of the continued progress. Of course. Glad we were able to do this, and glad we were able to do it in our location. Yeah, yep. great pleasure. Thank yep. you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Excellent.